For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel. Joining me over Zoom video conference, lawmakers and the governor are fighting over supplemental funding. The legislature passed three bills to help fund a $416 million revenue shortfall, but the governor has indicated he might not sign it. He's apparently holding out for more money to a pet project of his, the Digital Transformation Fund. Now, he says agencies should just prepare for cuts of 1% to 2%. Ryan, those measures passed by a veto-proof majority. Well, a a veto-proof majority, and we've also seen very strong statements come out of both the Speaker and the Senate President pro temp saying that they are not backing down from this and that they control the purse strings. The legislature is the uh, co-equal branch of government, but they're the ones that are uniquely positioned within the Constitution to craft a budget. And that's what they've done here. And when you say pet project, that's exactly what we're looking at here. We're looking at a pet project to the Office of Digital Transformation. That was something that was created in 2019. Uh, you know, so it's not new. It's not, or it's not on some ongoing service that's being provided to the people of Oklahoma, like education or healthcare. I mean, this is a really kind of a, uh, something that the governor wanted. It was on his, uh, on his bucket list for his first year. He got it. Interesting deal. If you go to the website, you know, everybody join me in, in doing this, you know, Google office of digital transformation, go to their website. And if you scroll down and click on ongoing projects, it will bring you to a landing page that's yet to be completed. It's even got the Latin placeholders in the website. I mean, it shows you that this is this is not even off the ground yet. So why cut core services that the people of Oklahoma need right now to fund something that the governor's own team hasn't really even started doing yet? Neva. Well, and I, I think it is unfortunate that we have this standoff and really the governor is at a place where he's got three he's got three options uh he can sign the bills he can ignore them and they become law without his signature or he can veto and as ryan said i think the the legislature has made it uh uh extremely clear the leadership that they do have the vetoes they believe or they do have the votes to Mm -hmm. override his veto and so um it's regrettable that in the midst of everything else going on that we had this conversation infused with the two percent cuts to the agencies both current and the next fiscal year being talked about by the governor uh when the lawmakers have equally made it clear to the governor that they craft the budget, that they've been working now for weeks and months uh, on the next fiscal year budget, and uh, that the funds are available and in place to continue on uh, making sure that core services are uh, are properly funded, and then address these uh, individual projects uh, that come along or questions in the budget. Those are the negotiating fine points that always go on. toward the end of the process. But right now we have a situation where the governor abruptly abruptly, uh, did not go ahead and hold the Board of Equalization Mm -hmm. meeting uh, this week. Mm -hmm. Uh, They did not uh, uh, have the opportunity to to declare the revenue uh, failure. I mean, so so you have things basically this entire week uh, remaining on hold. And as Ryan said, the Digital Transformation Fund, 
um, from all indications, and everyone seems uh, uh, much of it's hearsay. Many people, uh, even in the legislative circles, uh, have have decided not to really speak very uh, definitively on what's going on. But that that fund, which was created, as as Ryan said, in May of 2019, it, the, with 15 million dollars in the fund, and in April of 2020. We still uh, show 8.4 million left in the fund. Now, uh, the um, Secretary of Finance says that that, that 4.5 uh, million of that's been encumbered and 2.8's been spent. And that's o OMES figures as well. But regardless, we're talking about the fight over uh, a pennies on the dollar relative to the overall budget that's trying to be uh, constructed and, and addressed by the legislator legislators. So I think it's it's important for everyone to get back to the table. Bottom line, they need to move forward. The governor needs to make his decision. Based on that decision, lawmakers will make theirs. And I think we will see movement uh, next week one way or the other. Let me ask you, uh, we did not go to the Equalization Board. They did not do a revenue, they did not declare a revenue failure. So still was saying then you can't use this supplemental money without it is is there an impasse without him being able to call the equalization board can someone else call the equalization board how does that work i think that that's up to the governor and what we saw was a power play by the governor during the legislative session the special session that took place on monday uh his power play was to you know cancel the board of equalization now that's just really you know kind of denies reality i mean the reality is is that there's a revenue failure we know it uh, we know that for the 2021 fiscal year that's that's coming up, uh, that the legislature will be looking at for next year's budget, um, that there's going to be a steep, uh, precipitous drop uh, in the amount of revenue that they've got available. Um, so him canceling that, again, just seems really petty right now. I, I don't, I mean, he, he saw that they were going to cut the Office of Digital Transformation in an effort to protect all other state services. Now, remember, there's this federal stimulus bill that was passed. And that was, you know, part and part to one, stimulate the economy, but also to help shore up a lot of state budgets. You know, so we're going to have money coming into the Oklahoma budget as a result of this. Uh, so him saying that we're, you know, this is this is important stuff, but it's only going to be used for response to COVID-19. You know, so it's going to be limited what we've got coming in. Again, I, I really just think that this is just really petty on the part of the governor. And it shows kind of a, a track, uh, a pattern here. Of uh, the governor picking unnecessary fights. I mean, if you go back to the the tribal compact negotiations to, to now, you know, he's he's picked a, a series of unnecessary fights. And to draw a line in the sand in the middle of a pandemic for an office that has existed for you know less than a year and hasn't really shown any sort of progress whatsoever, hasn't even finished their own website. Um, you know, that's to me, I, it's just I, it, I I'm kind of dumbfounded as to why uh, what's motivating the governor there. Well, the the other point too that I think is uh, kind of goes along with what you said, Ryan. That there is additional federal stimulus dollars that will be coming to the state. I mean, the state will be eligible, I believe, for one point five billion with a B uh, in the stimulus money for for uh, uh, to be used for the uh, expenses related uh, to the uh, the virus and and the pandemic. So, I mean, we've got lots of lots of things in motion. And again, bottom line is some of some of this may very well have stemmed from either misinformation, bad information or information that really wasn't properly uh, scrutinized, whether it's by staffs or by um, uh, uh, legislative uh, leaders, the governor. 
they need to all get in the room and let's get this hmm. thing fixed is the bottom line. The people of Oklahoma deserve that from all from all of the elected officials. Earlier this week, lawmakers also approved the governor's health emergency, giving state additional powers to suspend any laws and regulations interfering with the response to the pandemic. Legislative leaders say the catastrophic emergency powers act only lasts for 30 days and lawmakers will have to revisit the idea. Then Neva, this also passed by overwhelming margins. Absolutely. Almost unanimously, two members of of, a state rep and a state uh, senator, the only no votes in in the chambers um, against the health emergency. And I think it does, again, speak to where we are as a state and as a nation. I mean, uh, John Eccles, the House Majority Floor Leader, basically said that these broad powers that were being given to the governor was equivalent to the Oklahoma Wartime Powers Act. Uh, that he had, that this incredible power was being uh, placed uh, in the hands of the governor, uh, and they were putting their faith in the governor to do what's best for the state. So it it, it grants a lot of latitude, a lot of ability to transfer up to fifty million dollars in these state funds to respond to the crisis, to activate the Oklahoma National Guard, to do other things. But along with that, the legislature made it very clear that they would uh, they would at any point that they believed the governor was going beyond uh, what was appropriate for uh, what was being done, that they would they would reel it back in. And they, there are specific measures in place and also a very strong willingness uh, to have a lot of oversight and transparency with the public and the press, as was noted in a couple of the of the news conferences. Ryan. Well, and let's I just want to, you know, Piggyback on what Neva said right there about the press, you know, the, the governor had a, a news conference earlier this week um, at an undisclosed location uh, with, you know, a, a bunch of uh, personal protective equipment behind them, a warehouse, uh, you know, displaying Oklahoma's uh, increased uh, readiness and our increasing uh, efforts to uh, to be even more ready whenever the peak for COVID-19 hits Oklahoma, which, you know, we're anticipating now is sometime in May, uh, maybe late May. Uh, so, uh, the, the extraordinary thing about that press event that I wanted to just you know, share with our listeners was uh, how superb the state's media and press corps have been. Um, you know, I just, you know, a, a huge shout out to, I, I'm not even going to begin to name them, but I was listening on KOSU uh, while I was driving around and I, and I heard it live. And, uh, you know, so many of my, my good friends uh, from the press corps asking very tough questions and then asking tough follow-up questions of the governor. Uh, they're taking their role incredibly uh, seriously right now. If you are reading or listening or watching news that's supported by contributions, consider supporting those organizations right now because they need it. Um, but the transparency side of this is going to be incredibly important. The legislature is going to have to do their job, um, and the, the press corps is going to have to do their job. The media is going to have to do their job of, of being a watchdog here uh, for us as citizens who don't necessarily have those same tools available to us. Because what we have given the governor are, extra, are an extraordinary set of powers. And if he's going to be um, you know, trusted with those, those should be limited and we should be, you know, watching like a hawk the entire time. Uh, not because we don't trust the governor, but because anytime we give anyone, uh, a range of powers this broad, um, and this powerful, uh, we need to be, we just need to have, have our guard up. And, and I agree with you, Ryan. I think, uh, it, it was a refreshing, uh, news conference to, uh, hear the, uh, 
hear the media, ask questions, uh, ask follow-up questions, uh, not to be antagonistic, not to be unfair to uh, anyone, but to ask for information that clearly the public uh, has a need to know and wants to know uh, during during this time. When people are paying attention, they're looking for information. I think from the legislative perspective, I think, uh, I think that it is uh, uh, clear that communication needs to be open and uh, uh, across the board. And when it when it falls apart, a lot of things fall apart along with it. So uh, the, the emergency declaration and the things that it can accomplish in terms of better coordinating a state strategy, being able to do things uh, on hospital capacity and and uh, relaxing occupational licensing regulations to get more healthcare professionals kind of back on the front lines in a crisis. I mean, those things are important to, to have in place and be able to do quickly. But along with that has to be the information to the public, just as, uh, again, as uh, Representative Eccles said, they, they would immediately, uh, they have vowed to not only make the information public, but if, if in fact uh, rules are suspended, that information will be brought immediately to uh, everyone for that to be known as quickly as possible. A judge stops Governor Stitt's temporary ban on abortions as an elective surgery. The federal judge ruled the state isn't allowed to deny women access to an abortion during the COVID-19 health crisis. Ryan, Attorney General Mike Hunter has already appealed to the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals on this. He's going to lose. At the, he'll lose at the Tenth Circuit as well. The state of Oklahoma will lose at the Tenth Circuit. It's it's all but guaranteed at this point. I think that it's a uh, ridiculous waste of money and energy um, at a time when we're when we're already when we're seeing a lot of political uh, unanimity at the Capitol, uh, which in and of itself is kind of concerning. Anytime we see everybody agreeing, you know, maybe we should pay more attention. But we we do have. This, this kind of rare opportunity where folks are coming together to address a pandemic. And we saw the governor throw one of the most uh, divisive wedge issues in American politics right in the middle of it. Uh, again, unnecessarily. Here's, here's our governor picking an unnecessary fight, and he's doing it on the backs of women's reproductive health care. Uh, the judge uh, you know, said that this is a uh, a timely procedure. It has to happen. If we, if we uh, eliminate things like medical abortions, what we're really doing is increasing the number of surgical abortions later. Um, I think that the 10th Circuit's going to uphold this uh, ruling, and I think that they'll do it fast. They need to. They need to send that signal and information to Oklahoma women uh, that, that, that those services are available to them and they're, const they're still constitutionally protected. I will say, you know, uh, and I was a little reluctant as to whether or not I was going to say this on the air, but women are forced to talk about their reproductive health care all the time and its defense. I called late last week to try to schedule um, a consultation for a vasectomy. And I was thinking that I was going to get in sometime late summer, early fall. Um, and I got a call back the next day from a nurse uh, from my urologist office. They were ready to have me in in 72 hours for the procedure. Oh. And, so, and, and I said, wait a second, aren't elective procedures prohibited right now? And they said, well, this isn't considered an elective procedure. It's, it's, it's okay. So how wild is it that as a man, I can in 72 hours go get a vasectomy. Uh, but as women in Oklahoma, uh, they're, they're now, well, now they're, they can, but the governor tried to forestall their ability to go get an abortion. Um, that's just, you know, topsy-turvy and, and, uh, you know, totally on its head of, of what it should be. And Neva, well, Ryan says it's, it's, a, it's a foregone conclusion. The Fifth Circuit uh, actually shot down tech or allowed Texas to follow through with its ban on abortion. 
That's right. And so I think uh, I think this has to go through the process and we'll see. I don't think there's any predicting what the uh, uh, what the court will do at this point. We've seen we've seen this uh, uh, we've seen this uh, partially uh, band struck down, but but in in the um, uh, writing that Justice Goodwin um, he said that giving deference to the state's executive as the primary arbiter um, was an important point that he made, and that the fact that the court did conclude that this type of temporary delay is a permissible use of state power in a health emergency. So there are some things in play here beyond just. Uh, just the 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 issue of the abortion ban itself, and we'll have to see what the courts conclude as it moves as it moves forward. Because clearly, there have been uh, uh, differences in what's happened in some of these uh, in some of these uh, processes and appeals. Ryan, do you and, think and the Fifth Court, Fifth Circuit ruling? Obviously, it doesn't inter, it doesn't impact the Tenth Circuit, but the fact that the Fifth Circuit did still overturn the lower court's court's ruling. Well, and the the the, tent, the 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 decision that we had out of the Western District, I think, is is a very you know pre, it's difficult to take the Fifth Circuit uh, opinion and use it even as persuasive in the Tenth Circuit because what we're dealing with here is um, a, a very precise decision, a very precise order out of the Western District as to every single part of what the governor's order can and can't cover. I think the, the biggest message right now is that if you uh, need abortion care in the state of Oklahoma, either a medical abortion, a medical abortion, you can. You know, those are those are completely un, uh, uh, untouched by the executive order at this point. If you need a surgical abortion and you need that surgical abortion before you would otherwise be prohibited, and Oklahoma has a 20 week ban. If you would be prohibited uh, after the executive order has expired, you can have access to that surgical abortion. The, the bigger question are, are individuals that need surgical abortions after that 20 week uh, that, that don't fall within that 20 week period. Uh, but the, the biggest takeaway right now for Oklahomans is that abortion care is there. It's available. Clinics are open and operating. And um, and this is a constitutionally protected health care right. And I think that uh, the Western District's opinion, in, in my opinion, is going to be upheld by the Tenth Circuit. And I think that they're going to do it in relatively fast order. A new survey shows a majority of likely Oklahoma voters approve of the work by Governor Stitt and President Trump on how they're handling the COVID-19 outbreak. The governor is getting 69 percent approval while the president is winning approval of 62 percent. Neva, do these numbers surprise you in any way? They don't really surprise me. And I think what what we're seeing is that uh, uh, in these numbers, uh, what is reflected is the partisanship that is keeping the um, is keeping the Republican leadership nationally and at the state level with the numbers uh, perhaps uh, lower than they would have been in times past. If when we remember President George W. Bush, he had a 90% approval rating uh, uh, in polls after 9-11. Even Governor Mary Fallon, uh, after the more tornadoes, uh, had the numbers uh, above 70% uh, in, in favorable approval, approval numbers. So I, I think I think we're seeing folks uh, basically um, kind of staying the course with their own kind of political philosophy more than anything else. And while there uh, while there may be uh, uh, certainly when you kind of break these numbers down, uh, even even with the governor's numbers, the 69 percent, 85 percent of that, 85 uh, percent of that are Republicans. I mean, when you start breaking it down into Democrats and independents, the numbers, uh, the percentages drop. Same being true with uh, uh, President Trump's numbers. So 
you know, this is a snapshot in time. Um, we see, we see these polls all of the time. You know, it's it's um, it's always somewhat uh, the the question is, you know, who's doing the polling and why? And and I think some of it's just the natural fascination with uh, with poll numbers that that we become accustomed to more than anything else. We're always fascinated by poll numbers, Ryan. <laughs> well, and, and who knows if they mean anything anymore? I mean, that's the <laughs> you know, I I you know, uh, Jackson Lyle at Amber Integrated said that. Um, you know, kind of what, you know, in their, in their take of their, their group that did this poll, um, in their take, they said that, you know, partisanship was driving some of these lower approval numbers. Now, that's probably, you know, true to some extent. I, I would say that it's, it's important there to not overlook the fact that, you know, at the federal level, Trump has amplified this catastrophe through his sheer incompetence. I mean, we're, we are where we are today because of incompetence at the federal level and with the Trump administration. Um, this catastrophe, you know, we, we would still be facing a pandemic. I don't think that you can't just stop a pandemic. Um, but everything from, uh, you know, early, early decisions around testing, uh, the, um, you know, uh, eliminating task force that for years had been studying how to respond. I mean, we, we have seen incompetence that I think is probably reflected somewhat in those poll numbers. And Governor Stitt is one of the handful of governors in the nation that has been slow to uh, enact statewide shelter-in-place laws. And even then, he still kind of refuses to say shelter-in-place. He's you know, very much safer at home. He's, he's mimicking more and more the language of public health experts, but he seems reluctant to do so uh, because he's kind of you know, decided that he's got his language of how he wants to talk about this. Um, I do think that there are some real concerning effects of polarization that we're seeing here because we see these unanimous votes or near unanimous votes in the legislature. Um, and that's, you know, uh, you know, remarkable in and of itself, but it's not really reflective of the electorate. I mean, the electorate is still very polarized uh, and they're very polarized in the way that they view COVID-19 and the pandemic and the response altogether. And the real, the real dangerous part of that, the immediate dangerous part of that is that it's influencing the response of elected officials and it's interfering with recommendations of public health experts. And we can see uh, there's, a, there's a great column in the New York Times um, uh, by Thomas Edsel uh, a few days ago, about a week ago, uh, that did kind of a, um, a, a catalog of all of the different uh, polls that have looked at partisanship here. And one of the takeaways is that partisanship is the single uh, largest contributing factor of, of knowing how a person's going to view the pandemic, uh, meaning that conservative and Republican voters are, were, are and were more likely to view it not as a serious threat. And I think that that's still influencing how they're responding to it. And that's, you know, at this point, it's not just a matter of bad politics, it's a matter of bad public health. And so when we get on the backside of this uh, thing and we're, we're on the other side, um, it'll be interesting and I think somewhat concerning to see how those polarization, how that polarization plays itself out. This isn't, you know, we're, we're talking a lot about wartime footing and Pearl Harbor, Harbor moments and stuff like that. But I think that there's a chance that when we get beyond just the shelter in place, hunker down quarantine mode that we're living in right now, um, that we, we walk out the other side an even more polarized country. That's a real concern of mine. And, and I think that, uh, the polls seem to be bearing that out. Well, but also in this poll that we're referring to, I mean, in looking at Congress and looking at the state legislature, I mean, the numbers were not surprising. I mean, the, the 44% approval of Congress, Congress has had a, yeah. Uh, yeah. a very poor approval rating for a long, long time. And yet when, when asked about the uh, $2 trillion uh, bill uh, uh, out, coming out of uh, this COVID 
crisis, we had uh, 85% approval. Um, again, so on the on the state legislative front, we've got basically a poll that's saying 70% uh, of uh, likely voters approve of the job performance of, of the uh, legislature. Um, and is that reflective of their view of their individual legislator or is that a composite view of just state government and and the legislature in general um you know it it, it really ebbs and flows i mean it's the same with the uh, hospitals i mean when they were when they were polled in the same survey uh the numbers um when you talked about oklahoma hospitals and their approval rating it was 85 percent not a surprise uh, in the pandemic uh era that we're living in right now so um, again, I think I think that um, when we look at even even the idea of how people uh, have their attitudes on whether they approve or disapprove of the news that they're seeing and the and the news that they're hearing, the media the media and what they're doing, it's all over the board, and much of it seems to be again reflective of this polarization mm-hmm. of uh, individual political philosophy and where they want to get their news and what they believe uh, what they believe in the news that they're uh, that they're hearing. So um, it's fascinating, but it won't be the last the poll I'm sure we uh, hear about in the coming weeks. But uh, this is certainly another snapshot in time that uh, is, is worth uh, taking a little uh, a short look at. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.